Tonight's reading is in Luke 23, 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. God, thank you for our church, and uh, we ask God for your blessing. We praise you, Lord, uh, in worship and fellowship and everything that we do. We, we want to honor and glorify you. May your spirit uh, be with us this evening as we unpack these verses in your scripture. Uh, may they affect us in a way that is beyond just knowledge and beyond just conviction. May it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you're new here, we study the Bible just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and this is where we're at in the study of Luke, and this is my first study in the new year, and in thinking back to a better scripture to start the new year with, probably can't start anywhere better than Jesus Christ's death, I mean, at least for a Christian. And this is just kind of the uncanny thing that God has been doing with us all year long with what we're studying. And I have people come up to me and say, how do you know you're going through this stuff? And I really don't. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working, and, and it's just that great of a God that we serve. Now, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. And so this is how we're going to start our year. And what hope is there in Jesus' death if He was not victorious over death in His resurrection? Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we'll be wrapping up the Gospel of Luke in 2013, hopefully. And I'm going to try to wrap up in a couple of months. And you're thinking, there's only like one chapter left. But it's a long chapter, right? I mean, so it's, it's a long chapter. So we're going to try to wrap the Gospel of Luke up in the next several weeks. But in this section of Scripture that we're going to take a look at this evening, Luke gives us insight into the most significant, important death in world history. And Luke is thoughtful about what he wrote to us. You notice that he doesn't give us any gory details about Jesus' death on the cross. Because his intent is not to appeal to the physical horrors of crucifixion. There is no great detail about the crucifixion in actually the entire Bible. Now why did Luke write about this monumental event without any great details in the physical happenings of the crucifixion. Why did he do that? It's because the focus is not on the physical. God doesn't want us to focus on what physically happened. He wants us to look at what spiritually happened. The physical is temporary. The spiritual is everlasting. So Luke doesn't appeal to that side of our emotions because God wants us to go deeper than that. 
And it's not like Luke wasn't incapable of giving us the the biology and the physiology of Jesus' physical death. He was a doctor. He was a physician. If anyone could do that in all the biblical authors, it would be Luke. But you look back to Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he was sure to include this introduction into the Gospel of Luke that he followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account of Jesus' narrative so that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. So Luke wrote his account of Jesus' death in this concise way because the aim was not to have us get stuck in our emotions of Jesus' death, but to encourage our spiritual faith in Jesus because the grave wasn't able to hold Him down. That death lost its sting. And yes, Jesus died, but He rose. Death was like Jesus going to sleep and He was going to reawaken. You know how much detail Luke gives us about Jesus' death? It's found in verse 46. He breathed His last that's it. That's all of it. Now we'll unpack this verse a little bit more when we get to verse 46, but I just wanted to point out how concise Luke was at pointing out Jesus' death. Let's start out with verses 44 through 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Now I think we've all experienced blackouts at some time, and several months ago, uh, we had a blackout in our neighborhood, and so I called PG&E to find out what was going on because I did receive a 15-day bill notice, and I paid it. But I was like, maybe they didn't get it, and they shut my power off, so I was nervous. And so I called, and the customer service agent answered and, and told me, no, 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 you're, you're up to date. What happened was a swirl crawled into the transformer, and it knocked out the power of several blocks. And Math, he, he's the sound guy. He lives in our neighborhood, and he was like, oh, that's why, uh, barbecue squirrel. And so it's barbecue squirrel. But when blackouts happen, it can be kind of unnerving, right? That's why I called PG&E. I, I, I wanted to know why we didn't have power. And fortunately, uh, it was during the day because the, the sunlight was providing light for us. But this went on for several hours. I, maybe they had a hard time finding the squirrel or something. But it went on for several hours, and it started to get dark. I started going over to like elderly neighbors and just checking in on them and saying, you have candles and all this stuff. And, and I started thinking about my own family, like, how are we going to prepare dinner? And how am I going to do the dishes? And how are we going to put the kids to bed without light? Like, how are we going to do all these things? Now, imagine how unnerving it was for those people who experienced a complete blackout in the middle of the day. Because the sixth hour is noon. This is the middle of the day when the sun is fully out and it's for three hours. Complete darkness. Middle of the day, dark. Now for the first few moments, they might be thinking like, oh, it'll come back? But then after a while, you start wondering what's going on. Is it going to be dark forever? Because after the third hour, you're like, whoa, this is scary. This is, this is, it's noon. And this was the time of the Passover. So it's celebrated for generations amongst the Jews. And think about what people are doing. People are out and about, hanging out with family and friends. It's about lunchtime. So they're out having lunch. And these people also know the Passover story really, really well because it was shared with them since they were little kids 
every year. And they know the Passover story. They know what happened in the book of Exodus that brought about this Passover celebration. I can't help but to think that they were thinking about the Exodus story. And they were thinking about the last plague before the the last plague of death to every firstborn. Because they know this story really, really well. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. What plague is that? Right before the firstborn death. Darkness in all the land. That's the plague. And then after this darkness was that plague of death to every firstborn unless there was the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel. Which was a sign that Passover, that that death would pass over that house. Death would not visit that house if the Passover lamb's blood was covering that house. Now, do you see the Exodus story unfolding here in Luke chapter 23 with darkness? Verse 44, darkness over the whole land before the Passover lamb, Jesus, blood covering us from everlasting death, passing over us. Now, in Clark's commentary on the Bible, he referenced this secular Greek historian, a pagan, not a Christian, a secular Greek historian named Phlegon, who lived in the second century and recorded this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night, so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. Eusebius, a Roman historian, also referenced Phlegon in regards to this extraordinary solar eclipse and earthquake at the time of the crucifixion. Now, what was really extraordinary about this time was the time of year that it happened. Because if you think about when Passover happens, it always happens during a full moon. Which makes it impossible for a natural eclipse of the sun to happen. So this is miraculous. This is truly supernatural. Now, back to the Passover lamb's covering of us from death. We have everlasting life because the Lamb of God, Jesus' blood covers our sin. Jesus has been made to be sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our sin before a sinless, holy God. He was our substitute. He paid our debt. Before Jesus, what would happen? A priest would go before God with a sacrifice, a sin offering for his own sins, and also for the sins of others he was sacrificing on behalf for. How about Jesus? Jesus went before God with no sacrifice in hand because He Himself was the sacrifice. Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice. Jesus Himself bore our sins and was our sacrifice. Now you want proof about the severity of sin and the separation it causes between you and God? You want proof about how much God loves you? John 3:16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The only way for that separation between you and God to no longer exist was for Jesus' death on the cross for you. Just like the only way that death would pass over those people was a sacrificial lamb to identify them, that that would pass over them. And it's the same thing here with Jesus, that that death would pass over us because Jesus' blood covers us. Continuing on in verse 45, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now what is this about? Well, there was a curtain in the temple that separated God from man. And there's a lot of detail, there's a lot of disagreement about what curtain, inner curtain, outer curtain, all this stuff. We're, we're not going to get into all of that because of a lack of time. But what we're going to say is the temple was a way for people to ritualistically encounter God. But the thing was, it was only open during certain times and only certain people could enter. So what did God do? What did Jesus dying on the cross allow us to do. It allowed for a reuniting with God. No more separation. That is what that means. There's no more separation. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. No more need for a certain person at a certain time of year, at a certain place, the temple, to deal with your sins. Jesus' death on the cross changes your relationship with God completely. No more separation because Jesus took the penalty of sin upon Himself. Verse 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Jesus didn't die a powerless victim. And this verse tells us that. And I'll expand in a little bit. Jesus knew His purpose. Jesus knew His purpose at a very young age. You look back at Luke chapter 2 when He was 12 years old, when He and His mom and His dad, they went to Jerusalem for the feast and they lost Him for several days. And so they found Him. Three days later, He's just you know chopping it up with the teachers and they're just amazed. I mean, how does this 12-year-old have this understanding and He has these answers and He has these questions? And when His parents saw Him picking up at verse 48 in Luke chapter 2, Mary said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your Father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And you can imagine how distressed they really were. I mean, can you imagine how freaked out Mary and Joseph were? I mean, they're there looking like, we've lost God. Like, they, they lost God, right? And so, and he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Because he knew his purpose for coming as an earthly man. He told his disciples back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He knew exactly what he was doing, where he was going, how he was going to die, who was going to kill him, when he was going to die, and why he was doing it. He died willingly because of you and me. Because we are separated from God. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus then says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Keep this in mind. Crucifixion was a slow, painful, torturous death. We're in the beginning of the crucifixion. You know, they'd hang him up and the criminal would be hanging up there and he'd be cursing at those Roman soldiers and talking about their mothers and making fun of people out there and and being all kind of arrogant and cocky about saying whatever. Like, I don't care what I did and all this kind of stuff. They can say all they want. They had all their breath. They had all their faculties. Everything was there. But as the hours went by, that person's ability to speak would leave. They would come in and out of alertness. They wouldn't have the strength to breathe, let alone talk. So, what was abnormal about Jesus' death on the cross? Look at verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And the Roman soldiers standing guard of this whole process They've had some extraordinary things happen to them that have never happened to them before. They were accustomed to this crucifixion routine. They knew what would happen to people. They had an idea of how things went. How long it took for people to die. Oh, this guy looks... He's pretty close. They knew. They've been part of this already. And if someone was able to call out with a loud voice... It probably meant it would be a while until they died because crucifixion was typically a death by suffocation. So if you had the voice to shout out loud something like this, they would probably think, oh, he's going to be going for a while. And so when he died, this must have really gotten their attention. And it did of the centurion because we're going to read about the centurion in a verse later. Because what happened to Jesus doesn't happen usually a person's life on the cross it is sucked out of them slowly they are dying a slow predictable death but with jesus he's in control of his own life he is deciding when he's leaving this earth he is deciding how long he's going to stay he decided when it was time life was taken from him but he determined when to commit his spirit and that's the thing with god God is in control. God is sovereign. He decides on the time. And Jesus knew his purpose on this earth, and he knew that it was fulfilled, and it was time to go. Time to be reunited with his Father after all that he had gone through for us. And you know what physical death for Jesus was like? Think back to when you were a child, 
when you fell asleep in the car on your way home from a, a long night of being at a family's house or being at a family friend's house because you were at a party or karaoke or something like that. And I say that because I'm family friends with Esther over there and our, our families used to get together for karaoke. I fell asleep a lot driving from her uncle's house. But there was a time where when you were awake and then you just dozed off. And then you woke up and you're in your PJs and you're in your room and you're in your home. And that's happened to me, like on many occasions. I mean, even now, my wife like carries me in, and you know, it's just, you know, and I wake up, like, oh, honey, where am I? But this has happened to my kids. We're driving back from something, and they find themselves in their bed. And they wake up, like, how did the? When did you do that? How did you do that? And I tell them, I even brushed your teeth. I'm like, what? So, how is that even possible? Because my kids know that they can entrust their well-being to their father. They don't have to be nervous about that. They don't have to be nervous. Like, I can't go to sleep. Oh, wake up. Because if I fall asleep, my dad's just going to leave me in the car. Like, they know that, right? That their father will take care of them. That I'm, I'm not going to leave them the house. I'm not going to leave them in the car. I, I'm going to make sure that when they doze off, when they wake up, that they're going to find themselves in their PJs, in their bed, safe at home. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now let me just take some liberty here to use that verse as a backdrop to get across a godly principle. Because if I, being an evil person, know how to take care of my children, how much more will the Heavenly Father take care of those of us who are His? And this is the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. It's a total trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, entrusting him completely as to what happens to him after he dies, after he sleeps. And this is essentially how it is for the disciple of Jesus. In death, when you sleep, you will awaken in your heavenly PJs, in your heavenly bed, in your heavenly home, in the presence of your dad. You've been trusting this whole time. You'll be there with God. Smelling bacon. Oh, oh, he's kosher. Never mind. Verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, what was a centurion? Who was a centurion? A centurion was a military officer who commanded a legion of men. He had to be educated. He had to be well connected in order to get that post. He had to be an experienced soldier. You don't enlist to be one. You can't just become one. You have to have experience. So why was a centurion mentioned here? Why did Luke point out a centurion? Because this ain't no rookie. This guy knows his stuff. This is an educated man who has experience. He knows about death. He has overseen these types of things over and over again. This wasn't his first crucifixion. He's seen his fair share of executions. He's seen his fair share of people dying. So it was a big deal for Luke to record the centurion saying, certainly this man was innocent. Because a centurion doesn't just go around flippantly saying things like this. He's seen many men die. Verse 48, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Crowds of people came to see the crucifixion of Jesus and probably even larger crowds during this time because it's during the Passover. 
So there's a ton of people there, and they're watching this spectacle. And typically, people would gather to see this capital punishment, but they wouldn't stay. They wouldn't stay from the hanging of someone to the death of someone. Why? Because it would take many hours. Sometimes it would take days for someone to die. So typically people would watch and then they'd hang out for a little bit and then they'd leave. Because, you know, who knows when they're going to die and, you know, you just kind of go. So many came to observe Jesus' crucifixion. Many left emotionally moved. They were beating their breasts, it says. But the question is this. How many of them left changed? How many of them left transformed? It says they returned home beating their breasts. So this is a way for the Bible to tell us that they were distressed and they were grieved and they were disturbed. They were convicted. But how many of them changed? How many of them were transformed? And maybe some of them felt responsible for Jesus' death because maybe some of them were in the crowd and maybe some of them were the ones who were saying, crucify, crucify Him, and we want Barabbas instead. Like, forget it, crucify that guy. So you see, this is one of the dangers of the Christian life. That we think that the accumulation of knowledge, that the accumulation of biblical information, the accumulation of history, the accumulation of all these nuances of knowledge, and we also think that if we get convicted or if we feel bad about stuff, that that equates to change. And it doesn't. It does not. Because how do you know that you've changed? You change. That's how you know. This is not a big thing. You change. You are a different person than how you were. That's how you know. And so yes, convictions and tears and heartache and and all these kind of negative feelings, all those things can be part of change. But that's not change. Because you can go to a movie for that. Right? You can go to a movie for that. Change is when there is a difference. There's a different corresponding action to go with what you now know, what you now feel, and the action corresponds with that. And maybe there were some who did go home changed. And maybe there were some that didn't go home changed. And for some of them, maybe it was the start of something that that was stirring in them. And maybe these are the types of people that when they heard Peter preach in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, maybe those are the people that came forward. But the question for you is, where are you this evening? Are you the type of person that's just coming in here and going, leaving, and you come here week after week and and there's just no change? I'm praying that there's change and I'm praying at the very least that it's a seed that at some point in your life there is change because what's the use of that knowledge and what's the use of that weird feeling and conviction if there's no change? Verse 49, And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And you notice that the women who followed Jesus from Galilee, they get this special recognition. Why? Because they stuck by Jesus throughout this difficult time, unlike the men who, like, they're gone. They've run and they've hid. Like, where are the disciples? And these women, they were ready to take care of things. They were ready to prepare Jesus' body for burial once He came off that cross. They were ready to begin the mourning and the grieving process for their beloved friend and their Messiah. And these acquaintances were around to watch what happened in these last moments of Jesus' death, albeit at a distance, but they were there. 
So I'm thinking like some of these guys are starting to circle back and like, man, what did I do? And maybe some of those guys are like Peter. Maybe some of those guys are like Thomas and maybe they're like circling back and they're just at a distance. They don't want to necessarily be associated, but they really want to be there. And you think about how did Luke get all this information? How did he gather all this information? It's through these eyewitness accounts. These are eyewitness accounts. You look back to verse 47, the centurion. Luke got the eyewitness account from the centurion himself or those who heard what the centurion said in order to write down what he said. And look what Luke recorded about the centurion. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, saw, he was there firsthand. Right? Luke is not reporting about someone saying like, oh, I, I heard that the centurion said this, or oh, a friend of a friend of a friend said the centurion said this. He's recording what firsthand an eyewitness saw. And then you look to verse 48. When they saw what had taken place. And Luke recorded for us firsthand what the crowds saw. It is directly from the source. It is not circuitous. He spoke to those in that crowd. Verse 49, Luke recorded for us acquaintances and women who were at the crucifixion. Verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These are all first-hand accounts. Luke was there gathering all this information to record for us this gospel through eyewitness accounts. This is first-hand stuff. What did Luke record in the beginning of his gospel again? Let's reread that. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He didn't write to us a fictional story. These are eyewitness accounts that he has recorded for us, that he has researched thoroughly so that we could know the truth about Jesus Christ. And you know what is so ironic about this section of Scripture? Actually, it's really not that ironic because it's throughout. Who is the one who sees and declares Jesus' innocence on the cross? It's the centurion. Think about this. It wasn't a Pharisee. It wasn't a Sadducee. It wasn't a scribe who would know all the prophetical books prior to to point to this point in time on the cross. They would know all this stuff, but it wasn't any of them. It was not any of his disciples. It was a Gentile. It was a pagan with no ties to Jesus. And this is just our awesome God. Because this is so like God. Always looking out for the ones who seem furthest away from God. And He's always pointing out things to them. Always revealing things to them. Always giving them good news. Who did He give good news first to at Christ's birth? Think about this. Shepherds. Wise men. Wise men are not believers. Shepherds are unclean. 
They tended the fields for the Passover lambs, but they were not allowed to go in the temple. They were considered unclean people. But yet they were given the good news. And He loves those who many would deem unlovable. And He gives them the good news. Who receives the good news of the resurrection first? Women. For us, it's no big deal. But this is the context. Women's testimonies were not allowed in court because they were women back then. And who does God reveal His good news to first? Women. And He's always lifting up people who others want to push down and He's lifting them up in biblical times. Who was a a miserable person to associate with? A tax collector. I guess they're miserable people today too. But anyway. Or a prostitute. Or a leper. And these are the people that He reveals Himself to. That He is reaching out to. That He loves. That He serves. And here is an officer of an oppressive government regime that is lording over the Jews, His people. And this is who God is revealing this revelation to. And it wasn't one in the crowds who were most likely Jewish who had heard of Jesus' teachings. And it wasn't those who went home convicted, but they didn't make this declaration. It wasn't even Jesus' acquaintances uh, afar off and His followers. They were watching at a distance. It was this Gentile, and not only just a Gentile, but an officer of the army who was part of this oppressive government against God's very own people. Yet this revelation of Jesus' innocence was revealed to Him out of everyone. It's revealed to Him. Now Mark recorded for us in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way He breathed His last, He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. How much theology do you think that centurion knew? I don't know, but I would guess very little. All he heard Jesus say was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that was enough for him to know that Jesus was innocent and that he was the Son of God. And I have this sneaking suspicion that this centurion became a follower of Jesus. That he was the one Luke spoke to when gathering first-hand testimonies for this biography of Jesus that Luke spoke to him. And upon that cross, Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable by God and His mission accomplished. He's done. God the Father and Jesus reunited and where we are given the chance to be brought to God. Sometimes we get confused on our mission. We get confused on our vision. And people are always kind of wanting to do this with organizational management, right? Like, oh, what's our vision? And what's our, put our statements and our value statements and all this stuff. I want to encourage us as a church to not get confused with our mission and with our vision. This is what we preach. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's it. Don't get sidetracked with all these other good byproducts of the gospel. Well, we got these justice issues and we got these mercy things and, and we got uh, this there and all this stuff and, and these all these good works and all these very good things. But they don't amount to much without Christ crucified. Because 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What good is it? We preach Christ crucified. That's what we do as a church. The only way not to forfeit one's soul is to look at Calvary, to look at the cross. The cross is central to biblical Christianity. What saves you, what gives you everlasting life with God, isn't that you believe that Jesus walked on this earth as a historical man in world history. What saves you and gives you everlasting life with God is that you believe Jesus Christ lived and died as the atoning sacrifice for your sins that separated you and a holy God. And that He brought you two together. That He bore our sins on Himself on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That God looks at us as righteous. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so we start our new year with Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. Deeply planted in our minds, our hearts, our spirits. This is my first message from this pulpit in our new year. And it's not just to know that He came, but it's to know why He came. And I feel so blessed that we're starting this new year with the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, I can't plan this any better. What better focal point is there in the Christian faith? And I'm really excited to start here to take the next several steps in our first several months to finish talking about Jesus' death, to go into His resurrection and His promise that He's coming back. Now as a church, I pray that we have boldness for us to share this good news. Don't get watered down into feeding the homeless. It is a worthy cause, but we are not a food kitchen. Right? That is secondary. That is brought by compassion and mercy from us because we are followers of Jesus. Don't get stuck on teaching martial arts to kids to bring them off the streets. That is a byproduct. We need to preach Christ and Him crucified. We have 27 ministries here. I don't even know all of them. But we need to be about this about Jesus Christ crucified. And if it is not that, we need to restructure that. We need to change that. Because salvation is available to anyone who believes in Jesus' sacrificial atonement for our sins. And that is what we are about as a church. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the opportunities for us to serve our church, our community, the world. And yet sometimes even that becomes idolatrous. We ask God for your discernment and your wisdom as to preach what is a priority in you crucified Jesus. Thank you for your atoning death for us. Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you here this evening. I ask God that they would open their heart to you because your death was for them. What you did on the cross was for them. We also know that you are in control and that you are sovereign and therefore it is not an accident to have the people that you have here this evening to hear this message, this message of love that you have for them. So Lord, I pray that they would open their minds and their hearts to you. And Lord, may you also encourage those who are struggling with their walk right now, reminding them of how much you love them, reminding them of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.